The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Robin Gavon, Senior Critic at Large. And today we're continuing our Race in America series with my guest, textile artist, Visa Butler. And I'd like to remind everyone listening and watching that we hope you'll join in on the conversation. You can tweet your questions and comments to the handle post live. And welcome, Visa. Hi, Robin, how are you? I am very well. I'm so happy that you're here. And um, I thought I'd jump right in in talking about the really monumental uh, quilt that is uh, currently at the Renwick uh, about depicting the Harlem Hellfighters. I mean, I am I'm yeah. curious, there's a lot of history out there that has um, not been told. What drew you to this specific image? Um, I'm really glad that in the intro you had the video and you showed that black and white photo of the Hellfighters. That's that's what was that's what grabbed me as I was just perusing the National Archives. I saw these you know nine amazing, strong, handsome men, and I kind of just thought, of course that's the Tuskegee Airmen. And then when I looked at that title, the Harlem Hellfighters, and that's such an audacious title that I was like, okay. Who were the Harlem Hellfighters? And you're telling me that this was World War One, Just by the name and looking at the faces of the young men, I realized that this was a huge story that I had completely missed. And when I was able to see the, the actual quilt uh, in person, I was really intrigued by the fact that even though it is a collage of uh, fabric, um, the closer you get, you don't lose uh, the distinctiveness. You don't lose the faces the way that you mm-hmm. might with a pointillist painting, for example. I mean, is that something right. that you're very conscious of, the way that the viewer is taking in uh, the work? I think now that you mention that, because the photo was over, is over 100 years old, there were some details that were lost. And so I'm not just trying to show what the guys look like, but I'm trying to give the viewer, anybody who looks at the quilt, the experience that I felt when I looked at the photo, as in like trying to uncover who were these guys really, like not just their heroic efforts in World War I, not just the fact that they were out of New York and that, that they, were facing such persecution in the US, but like what was the personality of each individual guy? Which one was the funny one? You know, which Mm. one is the one who was homesick? Which one is the one who's a natural born leader? I was trying to discern all all of those things. So when you mentioned like that, it doesn't get blurrier and it doesn't lose focus as you get closer. That's like me trying to do that deep introspective, um, deep dive into the psyche of a man. 
And one of the other, I thought, really intriguing aspects, and I know you've <clears throat> talked a bit about this before, has been mm -hmm. your choice of um, the particular fabrics that you use, the colors that you choose, um, the fact that some of the faces are in tones of blue and others are in tones of reds and yellows. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, the way that you choose the colors and what you hope they evoke? Sure. I mean, when I first started creating artwork, I was a painter and I was a student at Howard University. And this was like the 1990s. My professors, a lot of them came directly out of the Afro-Cobra movement, which was uh, the visual arm, if you will, of the Black Panther movement, a way that young Black African-Americans in the 1960s could say with their artwork what other people were saying with their speeches and with their marches and with their actions. And that embracing of a Black identity also came with a new color palette, which they wanted to determine for themselves, not only just using color to depict a human being, but using color to depict an African-American person whose roots are in the continent. So what were the textiles like? What are the bright yellows and the bright oranges and the reds and the indigos? Like, what are the colors that you would see if you traveled to Africa in the 1960s? Or if you walked in any urban city in the 60s, what were those colors that the young hip people were wearing? And they called those the Kool-Aid colors. So cool as in cool, like actually hip, cool, <laughs> with it young people, what were they wearing? And, and it's interesting that they were translating those, those colors into paint. And now I'm sort of translating them back into textiles because they were being influenced by those fashions. And um, they also talked to us about using color to express emotion. I mean, you hear that a lot in our language. Um, we say that we have the blues, you know, or somebody's green with envy, or, you know, I was so, so angry that I felt myself go red, or I saw red, or I felt red. So I'm using those colors in an enhanced way to sort of give that insight. Um, one young man, one of the Hellfighters, he looks kind of calm, his head is kind of like tilted lean back to the side. So when I see that, I'm thinking maybe this young man is the one who was more cool, more calm. Maybe he was calm under pressure. So I'm using colors that indicate calmness, like the blues and the greens of like a calm water, somebody who has more level vibes. But on the, on the converse of that, there's one young man at the top and he's kind of frowning in a way he's looking at the viewer or looking at the photographer like I do not trust you man <laughs> I'm not only I'm not only reading you but I'm finding you inadequate in some way <laughs> so I used a lot of reds and oranges with him because I thought like that personality seemed very kind of forceful and red is that passionate color it can be anger, it can be passion, it can be power. And so I'm using the color to not only reflect like my, my 
upbringing at Howard University and, and my philosophy as far as having an African-American color palette, but I'm also using color to express who I think these men are on the inside. And another uh, quilt uh, was one of your, your earlier life-size quilts. You used the <clears throat> photograph, a, photo, a photograph by uh, Russell Lee, I think from 1941, yes. of a, a group of uh, young men, a group of boys. And yes. I mean, they are most definitely serving up all kinds of different attitude there. Can, yeah. you, can you talk a bit also about, um, you know, depicting them and, you know, they're not necessarily, uh, you know, these heroic uh, young men. They seem to be mm -hmm. just, you know, a group of friends. Yeah. Well, that. When I worked on that piece, I was still a high school teacher. I was a public high school art teacher for 13 years. I worked for 10 years in Newark, New Jersey, and three years in my hometown in Maplewood, New Jersey. And as my mother would say, you were doing the Lord's work. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, you know, teenagers, they are challenging. They're unique creatures. Um, and I love my students dearly. And so at the same time as I was beginning to start showing my work more nationally, I was in the classroom and I'm seeing all these things on the news and Trayvon Martin had been killed, had been murdered um, not too long after that piece was made. And I was thinking about this assumption that is always made about young black men, about people of color. Um, they're just kids, like any other kid, whether or not the kid is poor or the kid does not have the resources that other people have. At the end of the day, the inside of that child is just like any other child. And when I saw this photo of these five boys by Russell Lee, I thought, you know, Russell Lee, he captured exactly what our children are in our neighborhoods. How do the parents? want to dress their children. This is Easter morning. And I was that kid too, that um, my mother was a teacher and my father was a college administrator. So I wasn't necessarily wealthy, but Easter was very important in the community. Um, it was so important that the children looked clean from head to toe. And when mm -hmm. I saw that, even some of the boys, you see that the bottoms of their shoes are clean too. So they're brand new. The parents in the community care deeply about the welfare of these children and what these children are dressed like and what they project into their community themselves. So my piece was sort of that reflection on the individualism of each child, how each one of them is so valuable and important to the people around them. And then again, using color to show who are they, who were they as a group? The way Russell Lee styled them, they're sort of in this diamond formation. And the young man in the center, he's, um, I depict him mostly in reds. And that to this date is the only young man who's been identified by name in that photo. Um, I put a query out on Instagram and I did get some responses from people. I mean, they haven't been vetted or proven, but people saying like, that's my cousin or that was my mother's cousin's uncle. So trying to use 
the crowdsourcing and trying to use the community to put a name and an identity to these young men are, is really important to me. Although, I mean, in some ways you have given them, I, I think, such um, personality that, not that it stands in for identity, but you really have given them a life beyond that photograph, beyond that time period, just through the mm -hmm. vibrancy of the image. Thank you. I, yeah. I also wanted to ask you about um, a, a pretty famous uh, quilt of yours. It's, it's the depiction of Harriet Tubman. We got a tiny little preview of that um uh just a second ago and you often look back at uh you know quite famous figures from history and depict them and it, it seems that to me that the use of the fabric the color the pattern um adds another dimension to our understanding of these people that have had a lot written about them. I mean, what do you feel like you're, like you've added to our understanding or your understanding of, of Harriet Tubman mm -hmm. in the process of producing the quilt? Well, that, that particular quilt was the source photo that you, that you just projected was mm -hmm. only discovered, I think in 2018. Somebody had it, you know, in their family archives for years and years, and I don't know um, the backstory of what made them bring that photo to light, but it was shared, and I think it's now being housed at the National Museum of African American History and Culture. So seeing that carte de visite of Harriet Tubman when she was about 40 years old, um, it brought me a new understanding of Harriet the woman. We know about her as a freedom fighter, the abolitionist, you know, the Moses of the people, the general. I think she was also a spy for the Union Army. Um, and I think also led like an armed raid. We hear about Harriet with her gun. But we never really hear about what did Harriet sound like, her voice. Um, was she funny? Was she kind of somber? Was she um, quiet and thoughtful or was she like spicy and, and had a mouth on her? Like, <laughs> what was it like to actually sit and chat with Harry? And so that part is missing. So I was studying that photo, trying to glean that from her. I saw how precise her hair had been done, how the boning in her top um, was so stiff and, and severe and had she had so many tiny little pearl buttons on her shirt. And I saw a Harriet that I didn't know before, this meticulous woman who cared about fine clothing and how she was perceived. And so it was interesting to see Harriet in um, not a glamour shot, but a shot where she had time to reveal more of herself. So I'm using color to kind of just share with people what I saw in her. And we know that. Harriet had to travel at night. And, and we know that she had to be very stealthy, very quiet, very careful, and very patient. So that's why I have on one half of her these blues and the greens. Again, thinking about quiet, calm, deliberate action. And then on the other side, I have this fiery red because she was known as the general. And like, like I said before, but we know Harriet had that gun. So... She wasn't always calm. Um, she had to, you know, be forceful 
and be powerful was life and death, her life and then the other people's lives who she was freeing. So I wanted to depict the two sides of Harriet. You, you mentioned that you studied um, at Howard, you studied fine arts and, and you started um, with painting. Um, can mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about why you made the transition from painting to, um, to fabric and from what is a, sort of a two-dimensional <clears throat> medium to one that is so tactile and so, um, so three-dimensional? I mean, contrary mm -hmm. to what I was supposed to do, I really wanted to just like reach out and touch <laughs> the, the quilts <laughs> at the rabbit, but I refrained. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, quilts are supposed to be touched. So that's a totally natural response to want to feel it. And they're, they're meant to keep us warm and to give us comfort. So there is like a little bit of a, um, a bit of a conflict there when we're told don't touch. Uh, but I made the switch when I was at Howard because one of my professors and, and, you know, obviously I'm a former teacher, but I'll always be an educator and I'm a believer in um, professors and educators, administrators who care about their students and care about their success and believe that they have more in them. And thank goodness, while I was at Howard, I had, um, well, the Dean of Fine Arts was Jeff Donaldson who founded Africopa, but my one professor, Al Smith, um, came over to my house because I told him I was struggling and I wasn't getting what I wanted out of my paintings. Um, they just weren't giving anything about me, the individual. It was just, it was very formulaic. Whatever they said to do was exactly what I put out. It was almost like a paint by numbers. And when Al Smith came over, he sat with me and took that time to talk to me and observe me and see me, the individual. And it was Al who said, Lisa, you always dress in these funky fly fabrics. You use lace and you're, you're um, adding leather cuffs on your denim jeans and you're replacing sleeves with African print fabric and Dutch wax. Why do you dress like this, but your artwork doesn't reflect your personality at all? So he told me, look at the works of Romare Bearden, go to the National Gallery of Art, see what the collage artists are, were doing and add fabric onto your paintings. So it was Al who gave me the idea to look into my own background. My mother and my grandmother were not professional seamstresses, but they were very involved in love fashion. And so I'm looking at their lace and their velvets and their silks and I'm like, okay, what if I put that and glue that onto a canvas? So that was the beginning of me sort of transitioning. And then after I graduated from Howard, I went to Montclair State for my master's. And my life-changing moment came in a regular fiber arts class in Montclair State. And they said, um, my professor told us, you should make a quilt. You can make a small quilt. You can make a landscape. You can make a portrait. And so I was like, okay, well, I'll make a portrait. And that was really the moment that my life changed because I realized I didn't have to use canvas at all. I did not have to try to fit this fabric in, onto this hard surface, but that I could sew just like my mother and my grandmother did. And I could use my sewing machine and I could use all those fabrics that I already had. My grandmother and my mother always saved 
and most seamstresses, they save their remnants. So I didn't have to worry about going to the the um, art supply. I didn't have to like have more money, which I didn't have. I had all of these fabrics that they had been putting away and aside all these years for a project that you never get to. And it was like they had given me their legacy of fabrics from the 50s, 60s, 70s, and the 80s. And now I'm using them to create portraits. So it reminded me anyway that I had everything that I needed all along. I just needed to, I needed help and I needed a professor to help me see that. I mean, one of the, you, you brought up the, the, uh, the fact that seamstresses always have these remnants of fabric lying about. But what's also quite striking is that, uh, you know, you're using quite uh, luxurious fabrics like silks and velvets. And, and lace, yeah. um, particularly when you are um, creating a, a subject's hair using lace yeah. and, and silk petals and things like that. I mean, why mm -hmm. do you choose those more precious fabrics? And I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about your depiction of, of hair, which is extraordinary in um, this quilt, Warmth of Other Suns, which uh, yeah. takes its name from the book, Warmth of Other Suns. Mm hmm Well, initially, I used the fabrics that my mother and my grandmother had. But as I was working with them, I started using fabric to try to tell the story. Who was my grandmother? She was a woman from New Orleans. Um, she had a Black Creole heritage, and this was a Catholic, um, very Catholic community. So I thought about the laces that she would have worn to church. So I'm using the fabric not only to create a portrait of her, but to tell about her lifestyle. What was the Black middle class like at that time? And as we know in our community, we've always and often had to deal with less, but we use what we have to create more. We put our own personal sense of style and flair into everything that we do. And as far as our depictions of hair, so I was at first thinking, okay, let me use Black fabric to create a dark hair. But then I started thinking, oh, I would like to use velvet because it has that soft texture and it has a tactile sense in it that gives me and can give other people the idea of what black hair feels like. And then there's a whole nother level of that because velvet is a fabric that we use uh, at special events. Velvet is a more opulent, more expensive fabric. So I'm also saying that I feel that our hair is valuable, our natural textured black hair, whatever it may be, whether it's straight, wavy, kinky, um, nappy, that those naps are precious. And so if I use um, black jet beads that cost $150 just for a small piece, or a beautiful silk velvet that's been produced by Chanel, I'm using that to say that I believe that our black hair is just as valuable as these um, high-priced fabrics and materials. That kind of leads to um, an audience question, uh, which is from Deborah in Virginia, who um, also was drawn to the, the fabrics. <clears throat> and she's curious to know, um, how do you source and find these vibrant uh, textiles? 
I mean, are they specially made? Do you have an in with Chanel? Uh, where do you find them? <laughs> I wish I did. So, hey, <laughs> Chanel, pay attention to this. But um, I look at fabric as my palette. And I'm always looking um, for ways to, to emulate the fabrics that I grew up around. Because my father is from Ghana, and my mother grew up in Morocco. So anybody who travels in Africa, or if you go to the market, you see that women, like their ordinary house dresses are these beautifully bright, bright vibrant fabrics. Um, the, the dresses that they wore in the 70s were called the boo-boos, and they were these big, draped, um, crazy, beautiful textiles from Europe and, from, and printed in Africa itself. So those are the fabrics that I grew up seeing ordinary women wear to the market and wear around the house. And when my grandmother was cooking, um, she would be wearing these bright, beautiful boo-boos. So that, that seeped into my subconscious and I'm always sort of telling the story of the subject that you're looking at, but I'm also the telling the story of me, this transplant girl who has roots in New Orleans and Ghana growing up in New Jersey in the 70s. So you'll see that in the fabric. And these fabrics, thank goodness, nowadays we can order them online. Like I order from companies like Blisco and, and Urban Stacks and I go right to the garment district. I live in New Jersey, which is about 30 minutes outside of New York City. So I can go to the garment district and find you know, the Chanel's and the Marc Jacobs and the, the Christian Dior fabrics and buy them right then and there. Well, you know, I, I think that um, particularly now uh, we are looking uh, to artists uh, to uh, to move us, to enlighten us. I mean, what do you see as the role of the artists, particularly now in at a time of such upheaval? Mm -hmm. I feel like it's not just the role of the artists, right, but the role of all of us. I mean, you are a correspondent you know, writer, producer, and you use your skills that you were blessed with to help. So I feel like we all have this responsibility to try to help, especially when Black people, people are suffering, that we can't just ignore that because we're in a contentious time. Um, when we think about how misjudging somebody or overlooking somebody and not understanding somebody else's perspective can create situations like what happened in Buffalo and what happened in Uvalde. If by me creating a piece of artwork that lets you see the humanity of a person, the soul of a person, and feel that this person and the artwork is valuable, therefore, the person that I'm passing on the street is valuable, then that's what I can contribute. And that was what we were taught at Howard, that we as the talented 10th at that time had the privilege to be able to go to school and be able to get an education. Yet many of our people don't have that privilege. So what is your responsibility to try to elevate and help the situation of Black people in the world, Black people 
in this country and bigger than black people, but what is your responsibility to help people, help humanity? What is your purpose? And so I feel that if I can make artwork that can help the situation, then that's what I should do. And we just have about a minute left, but I, I did want to ask as a former teacher, I mean, do you have still that um, uh, instinct to, to educate? Um, do you still have that instinct to um, speak to younger generations? I do. I suppose that'll never leave me now. I spent too many years thinking about, you know, what is my responsibility? Every day when I would walk in the classroom, it wasn't just the lessons that I was teaching as an art teacher, but what do I represent as a Black woman? If there were students in the class who never had a Black teacher before, students who look nothing like me and have, and have no background like mine, what can I do to help them understand who I am and how can I understand them and help them. And I feel that way with my artwork as well. It's still, I'm no longer one-on-one -on -one with my students, but there's still an audience and there's still communication where I'm trying to say, you know, I'm a human being and I'm depicting people who are of value, like the Harlem Hellfighters. And I also want the person who's looking at my artwork not to feel undervalued as well. So I'm still trying to have that communication that I see you and I hope that you see me and we can have an understanding. Lisa Butler, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm afraid that's all the time that we have, but it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Robin. I've enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com. First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis now has its own podcast where you can listen to all episodes in one place. Subscribe to First Look in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.